Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. So I've got Scream now, and I had a part in Romeo and Juliet, and so I was getting blessed by directors. And if one thing I could say when you're starting to act and stuff, it's like if you're lucky to work with great directors, try to tell your people to keep that going. You know what I mean? Audition, because that's, you know, the careers that you like are usually people that work with great directors, right? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope you are having a great holiday season. For some of you, it started. For some of you, it's over. And for some of you, it keeps going all year long. Anyway, if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram. Or you can reach me on my website at barrycats.com. And I'm really excited about the show today with Jamie Kennedy. It's going to be very inspirational, and I know you're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, let me introduce him. Jamie Kennedy is an actor, producer, and comedian, and has over 190 episodes of television under his belt with networks that include CBS, the WB, MTV, Comedy Central, Showtime, NBC, Fox, and VH1. He landed his big break when he was cast in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet alongside Leonardo DiCaprio as a punked-out rival to John Leguizamo. Kennedy's career catapulted into high gear after his breakthrough performance as Randy Meeks in Wes Craven's Scream, and its follow-up Scream 2. In 2002, Kennedy created the Jamie Kennedy Experiment, which became the WB's highest-rated show. Kennedy has portrayed a number of wacky characters, but the audience's favorite was Brad Gluckman, the white rapper from Malibu who Kennedy brought to the big screen in the hit film Malibu's Most Wanted. Kennedy's recent work includes starring roles in the last installment of the Tremors film franchise for Universal, as well as Riley's Peak with John Boyd and the thriller Spinning Man opposite Guy Pierce and Pierce Brosnan. 
Kennedy also appeared in creator of the X-Files, Chris Carter's Amazon drama pilot, The After, and NBC's medical drama, Heartbeat. He portrayed legendary music manager Jerry Heller in the Lifetime movie Surviving Compton. Kennedy has also voiced multiple characters on the Comedy Central animated series Legends of Chamberlain Heights and has had memorable roles in fam favorites like Three Kings, directed by David O. Russell, and starring George Clooney, Enemy of the State, directed by Tony Scott and starring Will Smith, and Boiler Room, opposite Vin Diesel. Additionally, Kennedy worked on James Gray's sci-fi epic Ad Astra, opposite Brad Pitt, and filmed Crabs in a Bucket with Bruce Stern and Taron Manning. He's worked with some of the biggest names in Hollywood continuously, and the list never ends, including Steve Martin in Bowfinger and Greg Kinnear in the Oscar-nominated film As Good As It Gets. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, what an honor. Truly is. I've known this guy for my whole life, it seems, and I never get tired of hanging out with him. Please welcome Jamie Kennedy. Buddy, how are you? Awesome. Great to see you, buddy. Great to see you too, man. Jeez. I got so many things to ask you. I Go ahead. I want to start off with something that I know that is always important to me and hopefully is important to the audience. Yes. Is how it all came about so take us through the beginning like where you grew up mm -hmm. what your family was like mm -hmm. what maybe the economics of the family were like mm -hmm. and what it was like gotten it out in the early years before you had any vision of what might be going on in your life i'm from upper darby right outside of philadelphia okay so you know the tower theater yes grew up right behind there and um, one of six kids, Catholic family, um, working class parents, uh, Upper Darby, Tina Fey's from there. The first person I ever heard that was famous from there was a guy named John Capoletti. Do you know who that is? Football player? Yes, he did that great Heisman speech dedicating the Heisman to his brother, brother. who passed away. Yeah, it was amazing. And then there was another guy in my neighborhood who was like a local rocker. And then I remember one day I was like on my like big wheel and my brother's like, yo, Todd is like a rock star. And I'm like, what? And it was Todd Rundgren. So he grew up around the corner. For those of you who don't know, Todd Rundgren's biggest <laughs> hit when I was a kid was We Gotta Get You a Woman. So it was, it's, I never thought of Upper Darby's anyway, but there's little people that Sherry O'Terry's from, I think there. Uh -huh. So it was East Coast, as you know, everybody, there's a lot of funny people in the East Coast, Boston, New York, New Jersey, Philly. You kind of have to be funny to survive if you're not a fighter. Right? So it was a, a, a not a upper class neighborhood, not no. a middle class neighborhood, a lower class neighborhood. Um, middle to low, middle oh. to low. Like I was right on the edge. Like I did have a single standing house. I had a nice, okay house, but I was always, I was like kind of. The ability to go into the hood, go into the city, experience a lot of culture, but always escape at night back to my safe surroundings. Did you have your own bedroom or did you share it with other brothers? It was me and my sister. And then as, as people went to college, they started going upstairs. So it was me and my sister. First it was me and my mom and my dad, then me and my sister, and then me. And then I had, and it was great. Once I was nine, I was like, it's on. Got it. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. 
That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And so you're gotten it out there. Yeah, uh, you are. I really was more than you realize because you don't realize what you're doing until you get away to get perspective of your growing up existence. I was kind of gutting it out. Did you have any idea as a teenager what you wanted to do for a living? Or was there something that happened in your life during that time that became an inspiration to get in the business? At about fourth grade, I remember I was in the choir. This is like, a, like one of these moments. And I was singing. And that the, 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 I was raised by a lot of nuns. You know what I mean? It was mostly nuns in my school. And they were tough. So that's why, like, on my... I saw you were had a Jewish look about I, well, <laughs> a lot of people, well, I play them on TV. And a lot, I think I may have some Jewish blood in me. Not, you know, I have to do 23 of me, but I've been hearing this from one of my aunts. Well, you share the same guilt. So. Yeah, we share a lot of the same guilt. But I remember singing in the choir and the nun telling me, you have such a beautiful voice. And everybody kind of looking at me like, yo, what's up, you girl, and all this stuff. And then I did a joke. And I loved the laugh that I did more than the praise of the voice. Does that make sense? Yes. And it kind of could have been a moment of dealing with some things of, ooh, got to fit in, whatever. And those are like early moments of finding out what I am. I don't even know what I was. Always at my mom's house. I mean, my, my mom and dad lived together, but... I mean, we were a normal family, but uh, my mom had a lot of parties. I was always making people laugh. I was kind of in school, a classic disruptive kid, didn't like school. So you were the kind of person who did these things in class when there was a pause from the teacher, you throw out the line and the whole class would laugh. Try to, yeah, try to. Get a lot of trouble, get a lot of attention. But there was nothing ever creative in my school or like my brother's a really good musician, but he went to straight and narrow. My sister's a really good artist. She went to straight and narrow. And then there's other people in my family that are just really good at like, you know, being studi studious. And I was, I could do that for two years. I got honors and I'm like, I'm just not believing this. I'm not feeling this. And so all of my friends were like goofy and fun. And it wasn't until I was in high school this is so your world because you hear about these mentors, which I didn't really have that many. I had a lot of nuns, my mom and dad, but they weren't like understanding Hollywood. And I didn't know what Hollywood was. A guy who was my teacher was a part-time stand-up comic at, I want to say the Comedy Factory Outlet. You know it? Yes, of course. In Philly. It was before Helium and it was in the 80s. And he would come and he would do like Jack Nicholson <laughs> and he would do, you know, Burt Lancaster. He would do like five impressions for us. And we're like, oh my God. and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, you know, 
that's what I want to do, but I'm out here teaching you bumps. And he would do comedy three times a week. I didn't even know. I'm like, can you make a living at that? And he's like, well, I'm not, but you can. <laughs> and like, you know, those guys would come down. This was the 80s, 84, 86, 85-ish. So it's like, that was like, to me, I was looking at, you know, Roddy Dangerfield. I never knew anyone. And he was, he would tell us the people that would pass through. So at that point in time, when he did come in, had you seen stand-ups on like The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson? Or- oh, yeah. I was always a super fan of stand-up and comedy in general. I just didn't know it was raising me. Who were the comedians that you used to see on television that moved you? I tell everybody this, that we were raised by... The, we're older souls because we were raised by older people. Like, there was no Disney Channel, no Nickelodeon. I was raised by George Goebbels. I was raised by, you know, um, Johnny Carson. I was raised by Zsa Zsa Gabor when he did the whole move the cat joke. You know what I'm saying? I was raised, Joan Rivers was huge. Um, Gary Shandling was huge. Rodney was huge. Um, Eddie Murphy really hit me in a point where he, that's when I really started following comedy when I was about 10, 11 on SNL. But at late night, if you could stay up late and watch The Tonight Show, you would see who was next. So um, Argus, I remember Argus specifically. Argus Hamilton? Yes. I on the that. Mike Douglas show. Yeah, dude, Mike Douglas. Mike Douglas was big. Um, but those, you know, I, I have to, if you name names from that era, I've watched a lot of them and I didn't know it. So those were your inspirations. Big time. I remember the first time I saw Roseanne. I thought she was just incredible. I remember, I remember George, I remember George Goebbels a lot. He was like a big guest. Yeah, he was a big comedian, but you normally didn't see him doing stand-up. No. You saw him on panel shows or you saw him on the Hollywood Squares or something like that. George Carlin, I think, was really young, the hippy-dippy weatherman. Yes, of course. So it's like before he went to his next level. Um, yeah, so I was being, that was like, we had four choices. And that was like, yeah, so I would watch a lot of that. And it was very, I didn't know that was like, but I was also Ted Knight on TV. From the Mary Tyler Moore show. And also John Ritter. John Ritter was a huge, huge thing for me. So I'd watch him every week, imitate his moves, all that. Got it. So what's the next step? How do you figure out what you're doing? What are you doing for a living? Uh, do you go to college? Like, what's happening with you during that time? So I had no idea about Hollywood or anything. I remember when I was about 15, I said, you know, people told me I could do, like, I should work in, like, radio. I'm weird. They said, like, you should work in radio. And I'm like, well, no one sees your face. They said you were weird. Yeah. Why did they say you were weird? Because I would either really make people laugh or people did not know what to do with me. There was no in between. Like I did not fit in the system, but I would entertain when I did those people, it would overcorrect what I wasn't doing. Does that make sense? So people that were laughing were really laughing and they didn't know what to do with me. I was a Catholic school my whole life and like get a job, get married, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I am not doing any of that. And I had a sister who was a trailblazer who always went and hosteled around the world. And she would put all these pictures on her wall, the places that she was going to go and where she would have been. And I said, you know, if you're like a successful comedian, you can just go there and live a better in a hotel 
And she's like, well, how do you do that? And that's something, I don't know, man, divine intervention. But I started feeling that I somehow wanted to do this. It was, it's so, long story short, graduate high school, go to a semester of community college. And I was two things I liked to do. I wanted to try acting and I wanted, and I liked to cook. Wait, so time out. So there's two things you mentioned and neither one has to do with stand-up comedy. Yeah. So I'm giving you the early. I know. So where did the shift come? Because early on you're watching comedians and then now you're 18, 19, and now it's like, okay, 18. I want to cook or I want to act. Now, yeah. cooking back then, there was like one show, Julia Child. I <laughs> know, but it was like a person that didn't have good grades could get into a good cooking school. Oh, okay. And that was like a certain amount of money. And I, people told me I was a pretty good cook. So I took an elective at a local college. These are these moments that built up to it. And I took an acting class and I took math and English and like those were easy. I did fine. The cooking class, I'll never forget it. The teacher said, you know, you, you really don't, aren't, you really got to understand what you're making here. And I go, I guess I just don't really want to be known for an egg dish. <laughs> and he was really like, take pride. And I was, Basically, I wasn't into the cooking. I realized it. And I took a local acting class in it. And I did very well. Again, I had another divine intervention moment. The lady said, go to Hollywood. The teacher of your yes. acting class. She said, go to Hollywood. And did I, she say why? She said that. She says, you have something. And I said, what does that mean? She goes, just go to Hollywood. And I said, what? And she goes, you're really good. You're very interesting. I don't know how you're going to do it, but just do it. And like this weird, like spirit, boom. And she's like, go. At the same time, within a week, my friend's mom, who is a local actress in theater, said, I got a job on a movie here. And I think I can get you something called a background artist. I'm like, what the hell's that? She's like, you know atmosphere and i'm like what's that she's like extra an extra you know she was like really trying to so i realized so the movie was a movie i went down i met for three days I, I met down they cut my hair they said would you do this blah 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 and boom i was making about 50 dollars a day and the movie was called dead pose society and i literally went to the craft service table and i looked within like the first two hours and robin williams was just eating a carrot that was in 1989. Everything that I ever thought at that point hit me, and I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Where did Dead Poet Society shoot? Delaware. So you were one of the kids in the classroom? Uh, movie theater. Big movie theater. Got it. Okay. But I was partly in the, in the grounds, only three days. So I did that. I was working at Domino's, saved up enough money. I said, this is what I got to do. L.A. Because I was kind of thinking about L.A. Boom. Moved out to L.A. in June. Started my process. Now, you know what's odd is that the first time I saw you. Where? Was in New York City. What, what year? Well, I believe it was in the late 80s. No. Early 90s. Earl had me early 90s. And you were going on at Stand Up New York. I was, okay. And I actually saw you audition for 
If I'm not wrong, I, tell me if I'm wrong. I think it was Gotham. You no stand up New, New York. I think I know what it is. And did you ever audition for a very large television series? <laughs> yes. And that large television series was SNL. That is correct, sir. Of course, you were there. Wow. Because you tested with one of my clients. Who was? It could have been either uh, Jay Moore. Okay. Could have been no uh, Jay. I think was... could have been Elon Gold. Okay, uh, you could have been on a day, night where um, uh, also um, Laura Keitlinger went on, and also um, I think I was after Janine before Sarah. But regardless, I was there to see you. Wow! So you came from Los Angeles to New York for that? Yes. So I started stand up about a year. After being in L.A. And I'm going to share something that's very, very odd about wow. that audition. Go for it. There's certain things that happen in this world, and you don't really understand why they happen the way you do. But you realize that there's one person in control of certain things, especially in the television show, at least one. In that case, Lauren Michaels. You went on, and you destroyed the place. I mean, destroyed the place. I mean, you know, you blew it away, but you didn't get the show. At all. And the person who got the show or people who got the show didn't do anywhere near as well as you on stage. I thought that. How do you handle that? Well, I remember that. I was 23, and... That's why I started stand-up for SNL, because there was two ways to do it, either improv or stand-up, and people like Eddie and Adam had come out of stand-up. So everything was leading up into that, building my eight minutes, my characters. Chris Farley was there. Do you remember that? He was actually, let me rephrase, I'm sorry. Chris Farley was sitting with Laura Keitlinger. Yes. And Lorne and Marcy. Yes. Marcy Klein, who's the big, the biggest producer on the show, and also Calvin Klein's daughter. Yeah, I remember coming off, and I remember Chris going, "Hey, man!" Like he was really, and I didn't know anyone. I left. I went back to my hotel room, and I waited. I think I went had a piece of pizza. It's kind of like a blur. And I think the next morning. I got my call that I wasn't going to get it. Um, I was told that I did not do enough political impressions. That's what I was told. Now, you know, you're never told. You just go, right? You never, there's nothing telling you what to do. So I said, well, I'll go work on my LBJ. I'll go work on, you know, my Clinton. What do you want? And they're like, nah, it's not enough political impressions. And I think that year a woman got it. I'm not sure. So yeah. I, I, I was pretty devastated. But the way it was presented to me that it was politics and then I can come back in two years and that it was. It wasn't the audition. It was more like, hey, they needed a woman or they needed a specific political impression. So up until when you went to L.A., you go to L.A., you have little or no money. Nothing. Uh, where are you living? 
lived in a hostel for a little bit, then I got an apartment, had roommates. So how did you get to the point where you started making some inroads in the business in LA before you came out for SNL? I did every odd job, just enough to pay rent, but I never took a big job. I never had a nine to five or any of that BS because it screws with your art. You always have to have your nights open. So I'd lost many a jobs because of it. I remember I got a job at a place called Mrs. Gooch's, which was the premier place before Whole Foods bought them. And it's a big training. It's two weeks of training. You have to learn all the vegetable codes, but it's like a real job. And I had an audition for Melrose on new faces just to get into the club and i said i gotta leave a half hour early and they said you can't and i said i have to do it and they said if you leave you're gonna lose your job and i said then i'm losing my job and i went back the next day and they said you're out and they said you pick an audition for five minutes over this job and i said yeah i did i said i'd rather sleep on the couch this is not my dream and people thought i was crazy but i didn't even think twice of it and so that's when i realized you can't have a regular job and then i got into melrose and that's what, so I, I got into the factory. I would just do a Melrose ton. Melrose Improv. Melrose Improv, the factory. But you're working these gigs and you're working your way in. I have making no money. So I'm doing a lot of odd jobs. Then through the Laugh Factory is one of the first places where an agent saw me, um, a commercial agent. And they sent me out. They took me. It was before SNL. And they sent me on a bunch of auditions um snl came out of a, a the club when a manager saw me by the name of pam thomas picked me out of the club pam thomas a great great manager also had great connections with lauren yeah so the, just not having any money or anything i was just bumming it doing gig to gig to gig but i got seen the snl was enough to help me get a small commercial agent auditions for a ton of commercials didn't get anything for a year and then my first commercial i got paid a lot of money Got it, but that was after the SNL test. Yeah, yeah. Got it. So, so at your that first big break where you... My first big break was something called Vans, it was Vans Sneakers, not something called, and MTV at around 93, 94, I got a commercial, again, through stand-up, through another comedian who worked as a side job as an ad agency. Five, eight, I'm not trying to bore you, but five comedians did a test tape for El Pollo Loco. None of us got it, but the agency liked my El Pollo Loco tape sent it to Vans. Vans said, let's do a test tape with that kid. Give me 75 bucks. A lot of money still today, correct? Go down to Orange County, do a test. The guy goes, so we will hire a guy like this. And the guy who runs Vans is like, you, he's like, chill, he's cool. He's like, well, what about that guy? And like, well, he's not sag. And he's like, but I like him. And he's like, what about that? Went down, met the guy, boom, campaign. Made about $9,000, which is a lot of money. In the summer, I think of 94, and I was all over MTV. And that was the beginning of a lot of heat. And that was after SNL. After the, I did not get SNL when I came home and I was like, what am I going to do? Now, before that, which is jobs, learning about the business, open mics, drama log, backstage, submitting headshots, all of that. And so when was the moment when you said to yourself, I'm never working another day job again? What happened? 23 years old, fall. I think this was right around, it might've been before SNL. There was a show on called Power Rangers. And there was a guy named Haim Saban, who was like this new revolutionary type of programmer. And he would take footage and intercut inter it, old stock footage with like live action 
kids in these things, these suits. And everyone's like, it became the biggest thing in afternoon TV. He did a spinoff called VR Troopers with the Green Ranger. I think it was the Green Ranger. And I was early 90s, Jamie, with my long hair. You saw me and like looking like, you know, Eddie Vedder. Got a role as one of the stoners. Didn't go to series. Was made that a stretch? <laughs> but made a, another a few thousand dollars. Got what? What did I get out of that, Barry? Tape, which is the biggest deal. And you're blessed by Saban, who's really hot. So once you know the business, once someone blesses you, you start. And that was like my one of my first, first, first paychecks. I was 23 years old. And I said, I'm never, ever, ever going to have another job again. And I was really broke. But I was almost, if I went to college, would have been out of it. So the years I would have been in college, it was just struggling like crazy. So I thought, okay, I graduated college. So I was 23, around April, when I was about 23 years old. Close. 93-ish. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Yeah. Tell me what comes to mind. Nick Swardson. It's a lot. I, um, well, you know, one of the people that have really, I have such a connection with in this business, even when we don't talk sometimes for a year or two, um, I know him, you know, very well in and out. I mean, we've, he, I met him in, so I started getting a lot of movies and stuff. This is after all that. And I didn't really do stand up much for about three years. And then in about 97, I'm in Baltimore filming a movie called Enemy of the State. And I walk by a small club and I see Dave Chappelle tonight and tomorrow. And Dave at this time was doing more movies than any comic. And I thought Dave Chappelle is doing this little club. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Yeah, that was one of the things when I represented him. He, he always wanted to be in a situation where he could still work in a place where he felt his roots and then i i remember asking him one time and he's like yo you can write in your trailer like you don't have to stop stand up like of course he's never gonna stop so i at that moment got inspired and i started writing again in like because we have so much downtime 
And then I got a new agent and I started going on the road. But at this time I had about eight minutes. So I couldn't headline. So I was people like Bob Saget, Rick Overton, Craig Shoemaker, all let me middle for them. So I go to the Tempe Improv, first place I ever did it, 99. Heath Heitch is the headliner. Heath Heitch is a prop comedian. He's mm -hmm. very high energy mm -hmm. and uses a ton of stuff and yeah. always kills. Kills, right? And I was also working with Gary Valentine. Gary Valentine is Kevin James' brother and he was a series regular on King of Queens. Yes. Always kills. And so it was Heath was headlining. I was middling, barely scraping together 18 minutes. And there was an MC by the name of Nick Swartzen who was doing 10 minutes. And Nick was a teenager back then. I think so. And he comes out and he destroys, just rips the room. And this is when clubs were full when you didn't have to tweet. There was no tweet. They were just happy to go out somewhere local. And it just, and no one knew who the kid was. And I'm just like, I gotta follow this. I go out, I do okay. Heath goes out, murders, standing ovation. I come back, Nick's like, yeah, bro, you fine. He's like, yo, let's go, boom. Go out, have a beer. The whole weekend, Nick's giving me tag, tag, tag. Didn't ask him, tag. By Sunday, I probably got another three minutes. And I was like doing really good. Nick's like, keep in touch. Boom. He's like, that character, B-Rad, I see the movie that you want to do. I said, blah, blah, blah. He says, well, I'll write something up. I said, okay, whatever. He writes eight pages, comes over to my house. They're fucking hilarious. Like, hilarious. I go, did you write this? He goes, yeah, you know, I was like, right, last night at Barney. I said, dude, you have to write another 10 pages. I gave him like 50 bucks and I go, write more. And that's how Malibu started, piecemealing him every eight to 10 pages. And just so our audience knows, I was representing Nick Swartzen and he told me to come into my office on a Saturday and he comes in with his backpack, opens it up, breaks out a spiral notebook, starts ripping off page after page of a handwritten script called Suckas. Yeah! <laughs> those little white things are on the floor. <laughs> yes. And I said, what are we doing with this? He said, we're faxing this to Jamie Kennedy. <laughs> and I faxed like 97 pages of spiral notebook, handwritten script, yes. which then became Malibu's Most Wanted. Wow. Yeah, I remember that because he had to go to your office a lot. Uh, Nick is integral in uh, some of my most creative things. James L. Brooks. This is a great lesson to anybody out there. Um, so I've got Scream now and I had a part in Romeo and Juliet. And so I was getting blessed by directors. And if one thing I could say when you're starting to act and stuff, it's like, if you're lucky to work with great directors, try to tell your people to keep that going. You know what I mean? Audition, because that's, you know, the careers that you like are usually people that work with great directors, right? So I get to go in and I meet James L. Brooks, you know, a huge casting director, Francine Maisler brings me in. And the movie is called Old Friends. Francine Maisler is one of the best ever. Yeah, she's, you know, top, 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 top. Amazing, she's made so many amazing movies. And um, 
very cool, very working. We'll do it. This is when you could audition and you didn't have to be off book. And the director would say, improvise or try this or try that. And I'm in his office and it's just like a... It's just like a suite at the top of the Four Seasons. And for those of you who don't know, when Jamie says off book, you know, that means that he puts the script down and he's memorized it and he acts it out like he's actually acting it out in the film with nothing. But other people, sometimes they hold the paper in their hand. A lot of us. Sometimes they have it rolled up. In the 90s, you could read it, you could look, you could stop mid-sentence, you could try it again, you could do this stuff. And people saw the essence and they worked with you. Today, not like that. So, I go in, I audition. James L. Brooks is like, great, man, that was great. And he's like, you're awesome. And I auditioned for one of the street hustlers. I remember walking out, and they see Jack Nicholson walking in with a briefcase and a script and a pen. This is Jack Nicholson. This is 1996, and he's, like, totally ready to go to work. And I was like, wow. Not only is that Jack Nicholson, but he's got his pages memorized and dog-eared and tagged. So it was like the actor. Get the role and go to New York. I'm booked for about five months, which is incredible. Skeet Ulrich was in, was the main lead. It was Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt, Greg Kinnear. Skeet Ulrich leads a band of... Uh, you know, street hustlers, me and a kid named Justin Hurwick wore them. I come out of my trailer, I go to set, and James L. Brooks says, I, I do my first rehearsal, and he goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He goes, yeah, he goes, um, I want you for the other role. And I said, I said, what? Said, yeah, 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 no, I like the other guy for that role, this girl for that role, because he's taller, you're smaller. You know? I said, well, what? Now, the other role that I thought I had, had more meat. And he's like, this is how I see it. I'm sorry. I don't know what they told you. But yeah, I see it as this role. And he goes, you know what? That was our rehearsal. Go back. Think about it. If you need to call your agent, do what you have to do. I understand. And I was like, it's Jack Nicholson. It's Greg Kinnear. It's Helen Hunt. It's Sony. It's $80 million movie. I'm like, I, I'm like, no way am I saying anything. Because it was two roles. It was like Laverne and Shirley. They weren't that big, but they were great, right? And it was like, I don't say anything. I start looking. I tell the AD. I go to set. I said, Mr. Brooks, it's no problem. Whatever you need. And he goes, oh, that's awesome. Great. Do the whole day. At that night, I call my agents, Boasting Gray. I tell them. They're like, yeah. They're like, look, if you want us to negotiate, whatever. And I'm like, I don't think we should mess with it. And uh, they said, okay. And that was it. And now uh, I had probably about five scenes in that movie, two scenes with Jack Nicholson. Do you know what I ended up getting in that movie? One word where he catches us breaking in and I go, yo. <laughs> so, I, so a couple of things I want to say about this. The first thing is, was when I go at that time, I was up, I was in Scream 2, As Good As It Gets came out the same time at Christmas, Titanic was just coming out, and I was in Romeo and Joe with Leo, and that was six months late, and I had a small role in Boogie Nights, which I couldn't do, 
which I was lucky enough to get cast because I was cast in As Good As It Gets, which was called Old Friends. So all my worlds were colliding. I go into looping and James L. Brooks gives me a huge basket. And he goes, I owe you a bigger one. And I'm like, why? He goes, well, I had to, you know, reshuffle a few things. And I'm like, what? And he's like, we're going to loop. And I just remember just looping. Yo. <laughs> Yo. 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 Just looping. Yo. And he's like, you're great. You're great, man. And he's like, I'll give you the tape. I'll give you the tape. Give me all my scenes with Jack Nicholson a little bit, which wasn't a lot. Just Jack talking and me like saying like a line and Skeet doing most of it. Got it all. That movie came out. I was in Scream 2. It came out and made 33 million. I would say I was like fifth lead in that. So I'm feeling my oats. That also came out. I think it opened to 19 million. They're both made their mark forever in celluloid history. That one, I, Jack won best actor. I don't, it was up for best picture. I don't know if it won. What's my point of the story? My point of the story is when you're working with an auteur, he, forget that movie, he also made broadcast news. He, Taxi, he wrote on, I believe, All in the Family, The Simpsons. I mean, there's too many, so many things that this man has touched. When he tells you you have another part for you in mind, you don't flinch. You do it. You be malleable, and I did, and I would ever they when they when he told me to jump, I said how fucking high, and that was a lesson. I was lucky to have that in myself, and I think a lot of people should know that in the business. That's me. That's how I did it, and it worked. And I also realized that you can be edited. Steve Martin. Oh, that's one of my serious like. He was also someone that raised me comedically, but he was a little before my time. So I was more Eddie. Um, and then I started watching his stuff as a little later, but to be his sidekick in Bowfinger was really art imitating life. And um, I have like, I have so many stories, but I, I felt like I was with him for about five years. The, the worlds that he introduced me to, and it was only about four months, but I can tell you so many things. I'll tell you a couple of things. First thing was, he said, we're one day we're shooting at Westwood at the, at the Bruin, which is, you know, one of the glass palaces. And he said, uh, and, and he did one of the funniest things I ever did, I ever saw. And um, he said, it was an extra and she was really, really beautiful. And she just wanted to talk to Steve and Steve was, you know, very professional. So I'm not, he's like, I go, I, I go, bro, she's kind of pretty. He's like, I don't want to, you know, stop it. Like, I, and so I go, what do we do? He goes, okay, watch this. And he goes, just go with this. When I say this, go with this. When I say this, and she's coming in, he's like, go with this, go with this. And he goes, cancer, stage four cancer. <laughs> no. And she's like, <laughs> she come back around with leukemia. What? Bam! The girl never went near him again. He's like, thank you. Thank you for going with that. Second thing is, he goes, you never want to critique anyone. Here's a way. You never want to critique anyone's work in Hollywood. But you also don't want to be a liar. And I said, well, how do you get around it? He goes, repeat everything back to them. So when you come out of a screening or premiere and they go, how'd you like the movie? He goes, how'd I like the movie? <laughs> how did I like the movie? How do you like the movie? You saw it? Never. 
ever saying anything negative, just repeat it back and sell it. <laughs> Those two lessons, man, woo! As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.